and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Hey, Rick, did I mention to you I've got a book coming out? No. I don't know anything about it. I don't um, yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a front time to the Trump read. show uh, coming out in like a month or so. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Good. Uh, you and I, <laughs> you and I just got back from New Hampshire. We did. We did a little bit going on there. This is this has been the, this is the wildest two weeks in politics, and it happens every four years. And I forget that it happens every four years. But what happens is uh, basically the entire um, national political press corps and all the campaigns and all the candidates, everyone goes to Des Moines uh, and decamps there and, and travels around Iowa for you know, a couple of days. Then the caucuses happen. Uh, and then uh, there's this debate in New Hampshire. It was an ABC debate. And then the New Hampshire primary. And in between this year, we decided to just stuff it up a little bit with an impeachment vote and a State of the Union address. Uh, uh, just to, just to and kinda... a Super Bowl, just because that's how the calendar worked out. And the Oscars. I mean, we just spice it up. Yeah, give them, yeah, Just throw, yeah. it all, throw it all in there. But we have survived. We're on the other side. And I guess, I guess we've learned something about the Democratic race. Uh, do we know who's going to win yet? Um, you know, we're... Actually, I don't think we we do. Um, but but it was it was interesting. You know, first of all, it was good. I was up. We we were up there about a week. Uh, you were you were kind of running that debate. Um, by the way, I I don't know if you you mentioned something to me. I don't know if it was off the record. So if it was, no, it certainly uh, was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I was looking. You, you you were in the in the build up to the debate. There was all this attention to where who was going to be standing at which podium. You know, you, all the there was media coverage of this. You know, the cables went nuts. It's always a big thing. Like, and then I had my sheet out because you you had your team had put out a you know a, a list of where everybody was going to be uh, standing at what podium. But uh, am I wrong or was Elizabeth Warren standing in Joe Biden's podium? All I'm going to say is you could, you could Google image the shots if you want to if you want to look at it. It may not have looked quite like it. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but um, the, the somehow somehow people got rearranged a little bit, and we we don't know where the, why they why they did, but they did it and they did it. It was a great debate, John. It was a great debate, right? I mean, it this was, was a, it was actually yeah. a great debate. I think the best since uh, since Lincoln Douglas, and that that didn't have all the cool graphics that uh, that, that you guys had put together. But but look, it, it you know we we come through. We, we have certain lessons that we have all learned from covering uh, Democratic and, frankly, Republican primaries. But but we but let's just concentrate on Democratic primaries. Uh, the New Hampshire primary became a thing back in 1952. Um, you know this kind of first in the nation status, and I thought it was very interesting to see. Uh, and this was a fact that Chris Donovan had pointed out that the lowest percentage of the vote. Uh, won by any winner of the New Hampshire Democratic primary was in 1976, and it was Jimmy Carter. He won uh, 28% of the vote. He had Mo Udall, I think, was in second uh, with about 22%. But, you know, and that was a, that was a pretty crowded field at essentially five front runners. Uh, 28%, the lowest that we've ever seen a winner of the Democratic uh, primary in New Hampshire come out. How much did Bernie Sanders get? I'm gonna say he won. He beat a record. He's a record. New holder. record. New record. For the New lowest record. percentage of the vote. Yeah, total. he's about 26 percent. And what's fascinating about that is, well, there's a couple of things, John, to unpack there. One is, yeah, it's a crowded field, but that means about three quarters of New Hampshire voters chose someone other than the person uh, that ended up winning. And by the way, I, I like, refresh my memory on this, but but who? Who won last cycle? Do we do we, do we have any stats I, I seem on to that? recall that it was a big night for Bernie Sanders. He beat Hillary Clinton. Is that right? Uh, as a matter of fact, he set a record that night as well for a non-incumbent in an open primary. He got 60% of the vote. That also is a record. So this is one of those records. We say this in sports sometimes, like you know, like DiMaggio's hit streak or Cy Young's win record, like unbreakable records, right? No one else will ever have the record for both the highest 
portion of the vote and the lowest portion of the vote in winning New Hampshire primaries. Certainly is, not in back-to-back years. That is amazing. So the trend lines don't seem to be great for Sanders. Now, that, that, I have to say, so, you know, we, we, we see, we Ben, we, we track uh, Bernie Sanders. It's been an incredible campaign. And the guy is the front runner right now. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Mayor Pete's got a slight uh, lead on the delegates. Um, but, uh, uh, by the way, that's another weird thing. We've had two contests and Bernie Sanders in both of them has gotten more votes than anybody else. And yet Mayor Pete's got a two delegate lead. Uh, that's actually correct. Uh, it's a result <laughs> I, I, of the Iowa. What happened was that, uh, Mayor Pete, because of the way that, uh, delegates are awarded in Iowa was actually able to organize his way to a two delegate lead. And because of the way delegates are awarded in New Hampshire, they were so close uh, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, that they actually got the same number of delegates. There, was, there wasn't enough of a difference to have, you can't have half a delegate or a portion of a delegate. So they walked away tied there. And yeah, Pete Buttigieg is on paper, the delegate leader. Bernie Sanders is the uh, voting leader. And meanwhile, the expectations game, I, I, would, t- I would posit that uh, this round of the first two states was won by someone else entirely, Amy Klobuchar, maybe as a direct result of that debate. I thought you were going to say Mayor Bloomberg, but okay. So well, so, that's well. We didn't even talk about Mayor Bloomberg. Okay, but, right. but but before we leave, we leave Bernie. So so Bernie, uh, you have to look at as clearly, uh, I would argue, the front runner, uh, d- d- despite of you know, despite those caveats that that are are clear and important. And our friends he, at five thirty eight agree. Look at their yes. numbers; they're they're on the same page. You know, first of all, he's now starting to lead in some of the national polls. He's got more money than anybody else, and you go out and you just you can't. I mean, the, the enthusiasm. Uh, of those Bernie Sanders supporters is really something to behold. Uh, frankly, I don't want to insult anybody or on either side, maybe both sides, but it's Trump-like. Um, you know, you go and you see uh, he 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 can he can fill up an arena just like Donald Trump can, and it, the people are fired up and dedicated to him, and to him, uh, in many cases, you know, more than more than the party, more than more than anything. I mean, it's Bernie Sanders. It is a devotion. That said. Uh, and, and for all the talk about how this was, you know, that the progressives have taken over this party, you know, you look at it, Bernie Sanders wins, uh, you know, highest percentage of, of, of the vote. Uh, but and, and Elizabeth Warren is in fourth, a, a pretty distant fourth, but a pretty clear majority of Democratic voters voted for a, you know, relatively moderate candidate, uh, one of those that were at least playing to to, to the center, right, Rick? I mean, you know, we, if you add up the vote totals uh, to for, for Buttigieg, uh, for Klobuchar, uh, for Joe Biden, um, you can even, if you want, throw in uh, Michael Bennett's point uh, three percent into there. Uh, I mean, it's it's more than fifty percent. Yeah, and, and I think I think you have to remember the context that Bernie Sanders did win big last time. Uh, intriguingly, uh, a lot fewer people said they voted for Bernie Sanders in the exit polls than would plausibly could have been the case given given the results of four years ago. But but the, the, it was a different electorate in any event, and they did not go with Bernie in the same numbers. Bernie wins, and he gets credit for the win. There's no question. The other candidates would love to have a win. But the the, the, the issue for Democrats is not whether they have other options to be what could be an anti-Bernie Sanders candidate. The issue may be they have too many options. And that is very much like the Trump scenario that we remember well, where you could win a primary with, you know, 29, 30, 31 percent early on, and there wasn't enough uh, coalescing around someone else. That's what's driving the angst right now in the Democratic Party, is that you have uh, a few strong candidates and include and a few potentially very weak candidates, the fate of Joe Biden, uh, you'd put in that category, uh, who could all present themselves as the alternative to the man that right now, has the the most votes in the two first states. 
And and I think you know, I mean, with some of the, all these rules that we've gone by in the past, you know, the, the, the only two tickets out of New Hampshire. Right? We've never had somebody who has come in, uh, who has not either come in first or second in New Hampshire, uh, go on to uh, to win the Democratic nomination. You know, since the New Hampshire primary has been a thing. Uh, I don't think that that's. I mean, I don't know what's the case here. I I, I wouldn't rule out. I mean, Amy Klobuchar, as you mentioned, uh, certainly is is has an incredible amount of momentum. She she came in third, uh, number one, I think, among all the women in the race. Am I right about that? I mean, yes. she she's gonna she's gonna be a force, uh, I think, going forward. Um, you know, I, I would not rule anything out. I wouldn't rule out, uh, you know, Bloomberg's strategy actually working. It seemed so far-fetched. Now it seems to be playing out almost exactly uh, the way he planted. He's uh, up in up in a lot of the national polls, and he, he may be positioned to do very well on, on Super Tuesday. And frankly, Rick, I don't know. You may disagree with me on this. I don't think you can rule. I don't think you can rule out Elizabeth Warren making a you know bouncing back, or even Joe Biden. I don't know. I, long shots, both of those. But but this this race is, I think, almost as wide open as it was before we went into New Hampshire. And by the way, in second place in South Carolina, in the little polling we have, Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer. Another, it's on the name of the mix. Yeah. Look, I, I, look it, it, is, it is wider open than ever. And I think uh, talking to campaigns in the last 24, 48 hours, they are preparing for a slog of a campaign. Uh, I, I think we, we often, in, in, in covering these races, we look for big breakaway winners and who can get momentum. That part of the campaign may already be over because Iowa and New Hampshire did not give anyone the kind of enormous boost that allows you to then steamroll and make it easy. Uh, that's how John Kerry won in 2004, John, as you know. That's how uh, th- that's how George W. Bush ended up ended up locking things down. Those first couple of states vote and you get it done. I don't see how Nevada and South Carolina now can make this a clean and easy win for anyone. You're going to have multiple candidates picking up delegates and then even more candidates coming onto the ballot starting on Super Tuesday. Even Elizabeth Warren now retrenching to Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday itself is looking like it is going to be a, 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 a divided day. Uh, look, it always looks like that at this, this portion of the race, again, to the point of forgetting what happens only four years ago, John. But as of now, the Democrats have to be prepared for a very long mathematical slog. And, and, there, and, and as we see this, we see the Democratic candidates starting to go after each other with more vigor than we have seen so far. Uh, certainly, that was true in our debate. And there was, an, there was a moment that caught my attention uh, on election night when you saw in Bernie Sanders' uh, headquarters, they had a lot of devoted fans there, obviously. And when, and they had the television, they had CNN on, and Buttigieg comes on the big screen and they start booing him. They start booing him. Yeah. Wall yeah. Street Pete. Uh, and then you have in, in each of the, election night speeches, you had a little bit of a shot that wasn't, you know, well, let's give a little flavor. Here was Bernie Sanders. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. All right. So, you know, that's that's and Trump. I want to thank all of those people who have worked and contributed to our campaign, but make the point. Yeah, but that, that's but generous. At this point Wait. in the campaign, we are taking on billionaires, and we're taking on candidates funded by billionaires. Oh, oh, oh. Could he have been talking about Buttigieg there? Was he talking about... Anyway, here's Amy Klobuchar. Hello, America. 
I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. That's the nice part. You're fine. Yes, we're Democrats like that. We know in our hearts that in a democracy, it is not about the loudest voice or the biggest bank account. It is about the best idea and about the person who can turn those ideas into action. We know that we cannot win big by trying to outdivide the divider-in-chief. We know that we win by bringing people with us instead of shutting them out. That sounds like it's almost aimed at those people booing at the Buttigieg's of the world when they come on the big screen, the, the Sanders camp. Anyway, let's listen to Mayor Pete. I admired Senator Sanders when I was a high school student. I think that's fine. I like that one. That's okay. So you know, know, he's just reminding that Sanders has been around. But wait, wait, uh, Susie, we have another soundbite on that question of division. Play that one. In this election season, we have been told by some that you must either be for revolution or you are for the status quo. But where does that leave the rest of us? Most Americans don't see where they fit in that polarized vision. And we can't defeat the most divisive president in modern American history by tearing down anybody who doesn't agree with us 100% of the time. That seems like he's taking on those progressives that want, you know, strict adherence to to, to progressive policies. Revolution, yes. Man, I got to tell you, the gloves are off. This reminds me of the Republican Party four years ago. You remember this was... Nah, you know, when when nah, Trump nah. was accusing Cruz of... You're running out of steam on that argument, John. You're running out of steam uh, on that argument. The it, little it, hands and the... You know, one of the, one of the developments that happened late in New Hampshire, John, and, and, and you saw it and you were out there covering it along with me, when, when Joe Biden uh, launched that uh, attack ad against Pete Buttigieg and it made fun of him for... Um, having nice lights uh, under under a bridge and, and redoing the bricks on the on the sidewalks, it was really a, a mocking tone. You know that disappeared from his speech basically the next day. It was almost like his heart wasn't in it. It, it, uh, it wasn't in it, and it was probably one of the worst ads. It, it Maybe the worst ad I've seen in this cycle. Well, it, it, look, I know people in the Biden campaign were excited about it. They thought it was going to be a momentum shifter for them. Uh, but at the end, Joe Biden pulled out of that uh, of New Hampshire before it happened. Uh, he went right on to South Carolina. He has he has backed off. And one of the most stunning developments of this early stage, John, we've been talking for a year about Joe Biden, the front runner. I think we've expressed skepticism about whether it's real. But I think both of us at one point said, well, you know, you got to just tip your hat to the polls and say there's got to be something there. Maybe there was nothing there. Maybe there was nothing there. He now has all of his hopes on on one state, on South Carolina, and all of his hopes pinned on his ability to keep African-American voters in particular in his fold. And there's just really no sign that we're seeing in public polling or the uh, any of the, the optics or the reporting from the campaigns that suggest that there's a lot of confidence there. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I think that I think we both may have been a little skeptical about this uh uh, since the start uh, of this campaign, he, he, you know, Biden managed to be the front runner in those national polls for a long, long, long time. Front runner even in, in a lot of the polls in the early states, but it just goes to show how useless uh, uh, those polls are so far out. You know, you get into the campaign, you get into the debates, you get into the retail politics, and you know, it just, it just, it frankly wasn't there. Uh, now again, maybe maybe he finds a way to bounce back. Uh, this is a very strange race. But before we take our break, and I know you're gonna, you, you have a conversation with one of the one of the real behind the scenes stars of this. Uh, you know, in the operative level, a very interesting, one of the most intriguing uh, Democratic operatives in 
uh, this um, in, in this race for the Democratic nomination so far. Somebody who has uh, who brought Mayor Pete worked went to work with him when when nobody even knew how to knew who he was, or if you knew who he was, you certainly didn't know how to pronounce his name. Um, and you've got that conversation coming up. Before we take our break, though, Rick, give me the give me the the, the Give me the, the the down and dirty here. Bloomberg, is this, it seems to be playing to what he wanted. He wanted Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina too, uh, to leave the Democrats with no clear front runner, with Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, moving towards the nomination, but not in the strongest of ways. And to be able to come in to basically save the party from the, uh, you know, for the Democratic Socialist left. Is it, is it working? Uh, in the spirit of New Hampshire debates, which we just had uh, another great one of, let's dispense with the notion that that Michael Bloomberg <laughs> does not know what he's doing. Michael Bloomberg knows exactly what he's doing, John. And I, the the detail that sticks out from these the, these first couple of weeks to me, uh, beyond the right play that things that, that kind of uh, kind of devolved into chaos for the Democrats early on, which is exactly what he wanted, or that Bernie Sanders is emboldened, or that Joe Biden uh, is fading. The fact that Michael Bloomberg called those voters in Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, there's only like five of them or something, right? Well, there he, are five. It's it's actually specifically five and they had a hundred percent exactly turnout, by the way. and they have one's to a republican and four four voted in the democratic party. And, and john after he made those calls he wins the republican side one to zero one to zero and he wins the democratic side i think with two votes two entire votes and he hijacked a news cycle from the people that had spent more than a year and millions and millions of dollars of hard-earned fundraising cash he stole it all from under their noses by making a couple of phone calls on landlines to people in the in North Country, New Hampshire, and that dominated the day of coverage. And look, Michael Bloomberg has all the problems in the world when it comes to stop and frisk. There's all the reasons that this guy can't win a Democratic nomination. But it's not just about $50 billion in his bank account. They are doing savvy things in the digital space and, in this case, the very analog space to, to show that he has got muscle and some moves. I, I don't know... I don't know how he could look stronger right now uh, in terms of well, his Well, probably if that stop and frisk stuff wasn't there and that, yeah, and like, that, and the, that the, audio beyond, tape like from five racing, years ago yeah. that was awful if, and, and, and his apology for it, which wasn't an apology, I mean, my lord. This but, things you can't you can't you can't erase things, but what yes. you can do is build build it up. And and Bloomberg sitting there waiting for the voting to happen in a couple of weeks, knowing that the first four contests are almost certain not to have way, a breakaway. Why did he announce his New Hampshire leadership team? Was that today? It was today, right? Yeah, I, I actually when I first when this I saw the day the, after the primary, when I saw it pop up <laughs> in my email box, I thought it was like stuck from last week sometime. I, I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't do New Hampshire emails after the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. I got to move on. But yes, he announces his New Hampshire leadership team. He's opened up a campaign office because it's a general it election. It's a general state. election. Yeah. Wow, yeah, four yeah. electoral votes. And yeah. guess what? Donald Trump was just there the other day. And there's a lot of Democrats who are already thinking, how are we going to keep the state blue? Uh, this was the, one of the narrowest. I think the narrowest victory by Trump of anywhere in the nation. Or sorry, uh, victor, lost by Trump anywhere in the nation. They'd love to flip it back. And yeah. Michael Bloomberg is spending money to make sure they don't. So he's already working on the general election. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we got to take a quick break, and we will be back with Rick's discussion with arguably the most intriguing Democratic operative of the 2020 cycle. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we're pleased to be joined by a friend of the podcast, Liz Smith. And I, I, I call a lot of people friends of the podcast, but Liz, who's a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg, I really mean it with you, Liz, uh, true friend of the podcast, and only in part because 
You got us that first Pete Buttigieg interview back in June of 2018. I looked back. It was so long ago, Liz, that we had to, when we wrote about the podcast, we had to, we had to do that whole pronunciation explainer uh, to, and explain to everyone even where South Bend, Indiana was. Feels like a long time ago, doesn't it, Liz? It does. It does. But I, re- I remember back then even um, how you called that he was going to be a, a star in the party and the future of the party. So um, I would love to extend my thanks to you for having him on and being an early adopter of the you know, Buddhamentum. Well, I, you saw something, and I, and I want to get to the, your history with him and, and kind of the the anatomy of uh, of the of the rollout that we've seen the, the explosion across the political uh, scene of Pete Buttigieg. But I I want to start with just offering some some congratulations. He's now the delegate leader, uh, as you know. He came in a strong second in Iowa, in New Hampshire after after winning in delegates in in, in Iowa. You've got to feel pretty good. Where, where does the campaign go from here? What's the strategy? What's the next phase? And I know you're into phase. What's the next phase of, of uh, boot momentum? Yes. So, well, and that's, that's not a trademark um, phrase. I, th- I think I just made that one up. But um, look, what we have focused on is in, in both Iowa and New Hampshire is really building strong organizations, uh, getting his name out, uh, getting meeting voters where they are and building the broadest coalitions of any of the candidates. And we saw that in both Iowa and New Hampshire, that he did well in rural and suburban areas, that he did well with women and men. He did well with college-educated and non-college-educated voters. And going into Nevada, going into South Carolina, you know, that is our goal as well. Um, And, you know, it's different terrain there. And we definitely have a lot of work to do. Um, to introduce him and to uh, really get to know, you know, the black community in South Carolina, to get to know the Latino community in Nevada. But we are going to take the same approach that we took to, to meeting voters here, which is organizing in communities, um, you know, making sure that we are going on every possible media outlet um, and, you know, really getting out the word about how, even though he's a different type of candidate, he is the candidate that we believe is the best to defeat Donald Trump in November. So the, you mentioned those two contests that are before Super Tuesday. Does, does Pete Buttigieg have to win somewhere before Super Tuesday to keep this momentum going? I mean, we already won Iowa, um, which is a good start. Um, but we are looking for strong showings in, in both of those states. Um, I, I don't think he goes in with a natural advantage in either of those, but people would have said he did not go in with a natural advantage in Iowa or New Hampshire either. Um, but we're going to fight hard for every vote. You know, I think anyone who has seen Pete's schedule, um, you know, the last few weeks knows that no one's working harder than he is. You know, he wakes up in the morning, does five, you know, five morning shows, and then we'll go out um, and just hit town hall after town hall. So we are going to take that same approach to Nevada and South Carolina um, winning is is, a, is always subjective in politics, but it's clear that we do need strong showings um, in both of those contests. And I would encourage you to check back with me closer <laughs> to the date of those contests to see what uh, winning looks like. So I was struck by something uh, last night, Liz, on 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 Tuesday night, uh, election night in New Hampshire. Um, Mayor Pete gave a uh, gave a speech, uh, and of course, Bernie Sanders gives the last speech as the as the person that that wins the the primary. And uh, he was 
he was he he talked about unity, but he also took a shot at uh, at candidates who are funded by billionaires, which is a, an attack line he's used against uh, Pete Buttigieg. We also heard chants of Wall Street Pete in that hall where he was addressing supporters. What what how much of a threat is Bernie Sanders at, at this point? Do you view him as uh, overlapping with your potential supporters, or or is this more about the the more moderate lane of the party at this point? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that Bernie Sanders is a formidable candidate. Um, And I think outside of Pete, he has run uh, the best campaign uh, this cycle. And he has shown himself to be a durable candidate through the ups and downs. You know, we've seen a lot of people fly high and then sort of disappear. And that's not been Bernie Sanders. And I think he has benefited from the fact that he ran four years ago. Um, but no, I don't see a ton of overlap. Uh, and what Bernie Sanders represents is a very, very different type of politics. Um, and he has a very, very different type of vision from Pete. Um, and Bernie Sanders is very focused on um, you know, a purity politics divisive vision, one in which you know, if you don't agree with him on 100% of the issues, you are not a part of his coalition. That's not what we are here for. You know, um, if you look at how Pete won Iowa, if you look at how Pete uh, came in a very, 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 very close second in New Hampshire, it was because he was able to build a coalition with liberals, with moderates, with independents, with, you know, what we like to call future former Republicans, um, you know, with with men, with women, with college educated, non-college educated and we don't see that we don't see that same breadth of support for Senator Sanders. And I think one of the reasons why we don't see that is because his vision um, for America excludes a lot of people. Um, and that's why it's one of the theories of the argument of our case against him, that um, he is running a divisive campaign. He embodies a divisive form of politics. And we are not going to beat Donald Trump. Uh, with more division. And we're going to need everything in our power. We're going to need all the resources we can round up. We're going to need every voter, regardless of whether they agree with us on 100% of the issues um, under our tent. Uh, And so that's why we are very focused on unity. So Bernie Sanders, formidable, but Ultimately, I do not believe that he is the right candidate to take on Donald Trump. When you hear chants of, of Wall Street Pete, and they broke out also at the big uh, 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 Democratic Party event, the multi-candidate event over the weekend. Does it make you concerned about whether Pete is going to be able to reach those voters? If they're, call, if they're chanting Wall Street Pete at him now, what makes you confident that they would come back into the fold after a primary campaign? Well, the idea that he's Wall Street Pete is laughable. I mean, he's a, he's a former mayor of South Bend. Let's be real. But but second, primaries, you know, can get a little spicy. We've seen primaries where um, – look at the 2008 primary, right? That was a very, very contentious primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. But ultimately, the party came together and we were able to win. And so – I don't begrudge Senator Sanders supporters for um, uh, for fighting for him and you know chanting against my candidate, but I do believe that Senator Sanders has said this multiple times that at the end of the day we're all going to need to unite, and um, I take him at his word that he's going to help uh, unite his supporters behind who the eventual nominee is. 
So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you first connected with Pete Buttigieg and, and the strategy behind it, because I I do think it, you know to 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 play a little pundit around uh, around candidate management. I I feel like uh, he didn't know a lot of people in national politics before you came on board. Am I right? You you were one of the first people to to get involved with him going back to the DNC race, right? Yeah. Yes, that would be correct. What was your theory of the case in terms of bringing him onto the national landscape? He he wasn't known really by anyone that I know of nationally. People that may, may follow Indiana politics were, were watching a little bit. He had run for statewide office. But uh, after that DNC race, uh, you didn't win. Tom Perez wins the, wins that. Uh, he kept a pretty high profile. What, what, what was your thinking in terms of how to get him in the mix? Yeah. So even though he didn't win the DNC chair race, um, I think, I saw a few different things in him that were really unique. One, his bio. You almost couldn't create that bio in a lab, right? You've got a Rhodes Scholar, veteran, you know, uh, religious um, mayor from the quote-unquote Rust Belt, who also happens to be, you know, openly gay. Um, And, you know, that's not a bio you run across every day of the week. Second thing I would say is that his style and tone is so unique and different from others in politics. He's the most calming, soothing person um, I've ever met. But also, his style is so unique. Um, was so unique at that time. When you think about how much you know, people were turning up the volume, and there was this theory that the only way to uh, Democrats could compete against someone like Donald Trump was to yell, scream, and get down on his level. And Pete was not at all like that. Um, and his politics was sort of grounded in his values, his perspective from coming from the middle of the country. And so even though he didn't win the DNC chair race, um, he did sort of catch on and get uh, some recognition in there for offering a very clear vision and a very clear vision and bio that was very different from everyone else. So... You know, I don't think we left that race thinking that he was going to run for president, um, but we left that race knowing that he um, was would be an important voice in the Democratic Party. And we saw that immediately with him getting invited to address Democratic dinners and not in blue strongholds, but in places like Nebraska, in places like West Virginia, in places like South Dakota, um, in places like Kansas. And so uh, as we were going out there and doing that, um, I thought it was important uh, to get him in front of as many people as possible, not just to promote him, but to promote a different future for the Democratic Party, one that wasn't rooted in the same old, same old um, personalities in Washington who sort of seem like carbon copies of each other, um, but to get him uh, – but to promote a different sort of vision, a different type of profile for the party. And you can't do that. You can't sit someone down with as many reporters and as many insiders um, as we did if, if they're not incredibly um, unique and don't have something interesting to say. So part of it was just a confidence in that, in knowing that the more people met him, the more people talked to him, the more people would see that this guy – is something completely different 
and really has something special to offer the Democratic Party. And another piece of it, Liz, it, it seemed to me that is that he you had to meet an awful lot of not just activists and donors, but political reporters. And yeah, you guys said yes to a, a lot of interview requests, not just our podcast, yeah. but Pete was everywhere for a long period. Of, and in fact, that continues to this day. Like you said, he's, he's still doing lots and lots of interviews. I'm just curious the thinking on that, because it, it struck me that Donald Trump used to do that. Uh, yeah. but that a lot of candidates don't seem to have learned any lessons or haven't applied the same lessons. But you saw some value in just having him everywhere. Yeah. And look, look I, I'm not I don't have a lot of praise for Donald Trump, um, obviously. But uh, I do think that he has an understanding of the um, modern media that a lot of people in politics don't. Um, and we try to sort of imply employ a similar theory, which is that you got to go everywhere. you got to meet people where they are. And you've got to go not just to traditional political outlets, but go to entertainment outlets, go to sports outlets, go to um, outlets that don't necessarily line up with your ideology. Um, and if you, if you have something to say, people will listen. Um, but one of my frustrations sometimes with um, – with political communications is that people think if you, if you just go on meet the press, you know, you go on uh, Rick Klein's podcast that you checked enough bo- boxes and, and, and you're good to go. That's not how it works. That's not how most people consume their news. Um, and uh, if, if you think that that's the only way you can reach people, you're not going to be successful. And we made a point of flooding the zone, you know, going on legal podcasts, going on, um, you know, sports podcasts, going on really everything we could see possible because we knew going into this presidential race that Pete had no name ID. He had no natural fundraising base, but the one thing that we had equal access to was earned media. So we needed to use the hell out of it to get his name out there and and see if this was going to work. And and a lot of that earning was courtesy of of Liz Smith. Liz, we appreciate you checking in. Uh, I know as a Dartmouth grad, it must be particularly gratifying to see your candidate do well in New Hampshire uh, congratulations again on this ride, and uh, best of luck to you moving forward, Liz. Great. Thank you so much, Rick. All right. And I would just have one other note about Liz. She worked for Martin O'Malley. She worked for uh, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. She worked for the uh, the, the Obama campaign back in 2012. And uh, there have been a number of profiles written of her recently that uh, that, that get at this. But she is uh, an intriguing figure that uh, seemed to be everywhere uh, over the, the last couple of weeks in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think you'll hear a lot more about her. If uh, if Pete Buttigieg's momentum continues, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. For John Carl, I'm Rick Klein. Thanks to the entire team: Trevor Hastings and Susie Liu, Angie Yak, Avery Miller. We'll see you next time.